What comes at the end of a textbook? The glossary. After the glossary. The index. What comes after those things? The back cover. Before the back cover. Nothing. It's something that's also in a human body. The spine? Oh, the appendix. The appendix. One of your mad about mad about you hosts has an appendix. The other does not. Find out which is which and find out what happens in this, the post one appendix age of mad about mad about you. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I can't keep doing this voice, so I won't. Or for a little while longer. I'm Russ Fader. And I'm John Marbley. And this is Mad About Mad About You. All right, You're that's mad- good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. We get it. Yeah. The world gets it. I had my appendix taken out, and you're uh, doing a little voice for it. Hey! <laughs> Now, that's not true, and you know it. What are you talking about? Unless it is half true. Did you also have your appendix out? I'll use the word also. Full disclosure? Full disclosure. No. Okay. I was trying to steal your thunder. Yeah, there's a lot of thunder to be stolen. I had my appendix out over the past week. Mazel tov. Oh, thank you. What a waste of interior organ space. Yeah, they call it a middle-aged circumcision. Do they? Yeah, though some people say you enjoy sex less without an appendix. <laughs> well, so far... I won't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, the bluest our show's ever gotten. But then also later, I still won't say anything. Some surgeries are fast now, huh? Yeah. Well, I went in on Monday afternoon. It had been, my my midsection had been sore for about a week, which is long in appendix terms. Oh, good. Yeah, right. Okay. In regular terms, it's like two seconds. Yeah. I mean, look, the world is how old? (laughs) So a week is... But yeah, one of the doctors, I kind of had to keep on insisting that I did have appendix, like that my appendix was in bad shape and that other doctors had told me so. I got to somebody and I was just like, yeah, it hurts right over here on what I will call the appendix button. Right. If you press it, if you press there on anybody and their appendix is in bad shape, they will be in a lot of pain. Right. And when they did that, it hurt a lot. And then this one doctor like moved two inches to his right and pressed near my belly button, which is also a pretty high appendix thing. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't having any pain there. But I was just like, no, nothing. And I was like, not really so much. But he was just like, really? Because lots of times, if uh, it's an appendix, this will hurt a lot. I was like, look, man, the belly button may not be hurting, but right over my appendix, pretty sore. I mean, to be fair, though, he is the doctor. I mean, well, you know, what do you know? To be fair, I am not a doctor. So I think I know a lot. <laughs> oh brother, you're turning uh, you're turning into a person who hates doctors. I'm turning into who I am to become. You're like... turning into my grandfather. <laughs> They're all idiots. And restaurants are dirty. <laughs> Another doctor is like, so you say you have appendicitis? I'm like, yeah. He's like, my appendix, I had my appendix out last year. When it went bad, I couldn't move. I'm just like, hey guy. 
I hear you. That's what's going on. That's really annoying. It's like, go home, wait till you can't move, and then yeah. come in. <laughs> oh, man. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I'm having a great time. Well, good. Yeah, I turned 35 <laughs> yesterday. Yeah, you did. Happy birthday yesterday. Thank you. Was it the best? It was fine. Good. <laughs> Any emergency surgery done to celebrate? Or? No, just same old regular kind of surgery scheduled ahead of time. It's right around the bend. Don't you worry. <laughs> Wonderful. It's good to get back into routines. It is good to get back into the standard operating procedure of watching and enjoying and discussing Mad About You. So let's do that, shall we? Sure. You're currently listening to episode 57 of Mad About Mad About You. We're talking about season three, episode 11 of Mad About You, an episode titled Our 15 Minutes. And the episode premiered on January 5th, 1995. Happy 1995, John. Yeah, you too. Happy New Year. Boy, oh boy. What a great party. 94 was a slog, but, you know, 95, I think, is going to be really something. We powered through it. We powered through it. I mean, 94 was big. Have you heard about this O.J. Simpson? I'm so sick of those late night jokes. (laughs) Come on. Those dancing Edos are pretty funny. Oh, that sounds funny, actually. I didn't see that. (laughs) Is that Leno? Yeah, I think so. Ah, he's so funny. I was talking about him last night. (laughs) <laughs> with him was it with jay lena yeah 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 he was just going on and on i was like uh-huh yeah yeah <laughs> i remember when i did this and i remember back when uh, this is funny it's a funny it's hard to not go into adam grant oh that's pretty good i just sent that clip to a friend the other day hugh grant on the show yeah because the anniversary of that was monday was the show hugh grant or, I'm sorry, was, oh, I screwed up my joke. Was your friend Hugh Grant? Oh, very good, yeah. That's very good. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, John, uh, pardon me. Do you have footage of uh, me on, 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 the, on the tele? All right, it's a workshop. <laughs> Keep at it. Oh, no, that's funny. This episode was titled Our 15 Minutes. Did we say that already? We did. Oh, <laughs> It aired on January 5th. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, you want the TV guide? Yes, please. I love it. Paul struggles for truth when he's chosen to make a documentary on his home life. This is very good. Very good. Even getting into the bit of the theme of the episode. A struggle for truth? Yeah. Yeah. If this was a Superman movie, it would be Superman 5, The Struggle for Truth. Yeah. Okay. That's how I like to think about most art. Titles? Yeah. What would the subtitle be were it to be a Superman? Superman movies have a lot of subtitles. Mostly just one. Are you kidding me? <laughs> trying to think. There was Superman. There was... The premise of that whole thing's based on nothing except some weird thing you connected with once? Yeah, John, what is this show? Come on, man. If it was a <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, it would be called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Struggle for truth. Yeah. Well, because here's the thing. Superman one. No subtitle, obviously. Actually, I think that was Superman the motion picture. I don't think the movie poster said Superman colon the motion picture. Double check me. I think it did. Superman 2, just Superman 2. I think Superman 3 was Superman 3, but then Superman 4, they were like Superman 4 colon the quest for peace. You sound like a lunatic. I do. (laughs) 
someone saying Superman 1, Superman 2, Superman 3, Superman 4 really quickly. <laughs> I got news for you. It doesn't even say the name of the movie. It's just a big ass in the sky. And it says, you'll believe a man can fly. It's a good tagline. Yeah. No. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because everyone knows what this is already. Because everyone knows the S. Sure. We already believe. That's why we're going. Is that your tagline? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no one's walking into this. We already like, believe that's why you're going. All right. I heard a lot of rumors about this guy. Let's see if he can actually fly. <laughs> I don't believe it. Yeah, somebody leaves saying, I don't think that really happened. <laughs> well, no, Russ, they go in thinking that. They come out going like, wow. You know what? They leave saying uh, a man can't fly. An alien can. Ouch. Yeah. All right. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get well, into it. Me, me neither. <laughs> Oh, uh, boy, in the future, getting political might involve talking about aliens. It's possible. Who can tell? What else was on TV? You're watching NBC. Oh, I'll tell you. Colin, the rest of the schedule. This is a real Superman, a real <laughs> Superman situation. Yeah, did you like my Superman reference? <laughs> well, we took a few weeks off for the holidays, as we mentioned that this is our first episode of the new year. When I say we, I mean... Mad About You, not our podcast. Yeah, the show we created. Yes. So since our last episode of Mad About You, something has been on television, and we're going to talk about it now on NBC. Two days prior, on Tuesday night, we had an episode of... <laughs> this is quite the buildup. We had an episode of Something Wilder. Two days prior. <laughs> something Wilding? Something Wilder. Is it about Gene Wilder? It is about and with Gene Wilder. Really? Starring Mr. Gene Wilder. No. Yeah? In the 90s, he was on a TV show about himself? It wasn't actually about himself. He played a character named Gene. 18 episodes uh, were shot. Three were unaired. Three were unaired. Yes. Co-creator and executive producer of this guy. Guess who? The BK himself, Burger King, Barnett Kelman. No kidding. I was very happy to see his name all over this. That likely ties my cufflinks to this series as well. Yes, that's and true. As directors, I think, tend to stick with their sound engineers. I'm sure you think you're right. Which means my cufflinks are now connected <laughs> to Gene Wilder. Boy, oh boy. Where, follow the cufflinks and see where they go. Their value just went up. <laughs> oh my gosh. Gene Bergman tries to get through life with his considerably younger wife, Annie, and their four-year-old twins. Yeah, let me read the synopsis. Look, that's great. That's what and Lee Kalkheim. I used to do a monologue by him. For oh yeah, a little play audition. You know, when you do a monologue and a play audition. Sure, for little play auditions. Yeah, it was from one of those books, like a hundred monologues, and it never attributed it to a play. And I always tried I know to figure exactly out... what you're talking about. Yeah. Wait, you know this monologue? No, I don't know the monologue, but I do know that just like Glenn Alterman. Yeah, this is just like the quintessential '70s playwright name. Yeah, he was like the the Neil Simon that didn't get famous, kind of. Yes, I don't got a full length in me, but I got all these funny little people living in my head. <laughs> I just can't tell a story. I got one Jewish character I can write for pages and pages. And pages. I don't know how to separate them to separate characters. <laughs> Let me read you the synopsis of this from Wikipedia. Now, this synopsis is funny because the grammar is wonky and the verb tense is weird. So the first sentence is told in the present tense, active voice, like you would for a regular show. Just like, hey, what's this show about? The rest of it leads you to believe that we're going to then flash back to the future, but we never do. So it's just like, 
A 50-something husband, Gene Bergman, and his wife, Annie, who is in her 30s, are learning to cope with raising four-year-old fraternal twin sons, Sam and Gabe. Sensitive, emotional Gene was especially unprepared for the prospect of fatherhood this much later in his life and couldn't fathom how the generation gap was going to play out oh with the kids gosh. once they grew older. Sensible Annie pulled him through the all the obstacles. Sensible Annie? And in the meantime, <laughs> the Bergmans were just setting in for the joy of Sam and Gabe's innocent years. Like, doesn't it feel like they're going to say, but then the show happened. This person had no sense of tense when they were writing it. That doesn't happen in this thing. I was just trying to do the wrong tense and it was hard. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. We've heard about Sensible Annie. Gene ran an advertising agency. But the good part about this thing is that you're just like, uh, and then what happened? But you never find out because we're just getting the plot of the show. Russ, did you watch it? I watched two minutes of it. Gene Wilder did not appear in the two minutes that I watched. And I was just like, I don't have the time or the energy to this. This is post-appendix, Russ. Anything can happen. Wow. Life can be over in a blip, John. Ladies and gentlemen, has watched... Maybe 15 to 20 hours now of pointless trash on the internet for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't make it through two minutes. What do you think was clogging my lower bowel? <laughs> uh, so, oh, here we go. Also, they don't, later on, they say the intended wit and charm of the show was drawn from Gene. Lots of strange. When, what are you reading from? This is from Wikipedia. Lots and gotcha. lots of very strange adverb and adjective choices that seem really undercutting. Right. The intended wit and charm of the show was drawn from Gene Wilder's comedic intuitiveness and the frantic mimicry and mugging he put on oh with his two gosh. young co-stars. Wilder and on-screen wife Hillary Bailey Smith also developed a, quote, comedic supercouple repertoire as they often found themselves in situations ribbed with slapstick every week. Ribbed? Ribbed. Slightly reminiscent of Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. Oh my gosh. Let's not overestimate how reminiscent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you squint and hold a piece of wax paper up over your face, you might think you're watching I Love Lucy. <laughs> At the same time, they were found to depict a smart, modern career couple of the 90s. However, something Wilder failed to catch on with viewers, which led to cancellation by March 1995. That's too bad, because I think I would like this. The notable quotes are funny. Yeah. Alice Cooper's on an episode. Alice Cooper is on an episode. And Gene Wilder says, Alice, would you do me one more little favor? And Alice Cooper goes, sure, Gene. Us guys with girls' names have got to stick together. That's silly. It's silly. Yeah, it's stupid. Jennifer Grey had originally won the role of his wife. Oh, no. Then what happened? And shot the test pilot. Oh. But test audiences disapproved of the age difference between her and Gene Wilder. Oh, interesting. They scrambled to try to find somebody new, and they got Hillary Bailey Smith, who was on One Life to Live on Rival Network, I think on ABC. They allowed her to appear to do both shows. She's been on 527 episodes. So she's a standard. She is three years younger than Jennifer Grey. I understand the way that people read. Or I'm sorry, three years older than Jennifer Grey. Oh. I screwed up. But still, the idea that it's just like, Jennifer Grey is too young to be with Gene Wilder. Find me a woman three years older than Jennifer Grey, and then we'll talk. Yeah, there's definitely no difference between the ages of 18 and, say, 21 or 15 <laughs> and 18. Yeah, point taken. <laughs> 
Now we can talk about what I really wanted to get into on this episode. Age laws. <laughs> so that's what was on television. That sounds great. There's lots of it available on YouTube, so you can absolutely watch a good chunk of something wilder on YouTube. I absolutely will, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, we can do that. You can definitely do it because I won't have anything to do with it if it's just you. I'll do it alone. I'll do it. <laughs> good call. What was in the news, John? From WNBC-TV, this is News 4 New York with Chuck Scarborough and Pat Harper. Oh, Dateline. Do, 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 do. Go ahead. Zipper saved. <laughs> Remember last week we talked about the uh, zipper? And by last week, I mean two weeks ago. Refresh my memory. This is pre-appendix, Russ. Yeah. You know what Who I mean. Who can know? It sounds like your sex drive theory was correct because my memory of the zipper has gone out the window. <laughs> These are the kind of jokes you get from me now, everybody. I don't know if anyone's noticing a change there. <laughs> it's the uh, marquee that runs around the headlines. Wow. Right. <laughs> I yes, really yes, cut yes, him yes, up, yes, everyone. Yes. <laughs> He's an easier audience now. Yeah, I used to be a real tough nut to crack when it comes to <laughs> laughing. It's the headlines that run around the building in Times Square. Right. That's the zipper. Yes, yes, yes. And you'll recall the lease was up. Right. And New York Newsday, who had the lease, uh, was not going to renew. And they didn't know if the zipper was going to close. And it sounds like things worked out. In typical New York fashion, the lease went month to month. (laughs) Sure. And Pearson took it over. Conglomerate that we've never heard of, like all conglomerates. Great. They own the Financial Times, The Economist, and Penguin Books. And twist, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. Interesting. When you uh, intellectuals subscribe to The Economist... You're also feeding some money into that that old trash heap of wax down on 42nd Street. Trash heap of wax. I'm sure it's fun. I've never been. Uh, Me neither. It's a blast. I'll bet. So this story came out on, uh, I think, New Year's Day. Oh, no. It says, on New Year's Eve, when Pearson takes over the tape, it will play a series of celebrity greetings, including one from President Clinton. Another will be from the writer Wendy Wasserstein. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So we went from the president to... (laughs) Semi-obscure playwright, I feel like. I beg to differ. Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. Sure. I guess at the time, people would know her name. And I know, and everybody knows, everybody who's ever won any Pulitzer Prize. You're right. In that context, it's playing right up the street. You know, it's on Broadway. Also, let's see, 94, 95? She probably just won, right? Is that the height of Heidi Chronicles? Chronicles? I think so. I think she's a, a hot commodity right now. Excuse me, though. I, the whole world knows the president. It's Wasserstein mania. Yeah. <laughs> Her marquee said, quote, single Jewish female seeks warm, intelligent, happy New Year. Photos a must. Hmm. I know. It's very fun. Oh, Wendy, we miss you. Dateline. Do, 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 do. Go ahead. I'm not really going to read it. <laughs> We've got a problem, John. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg had a sandwich? Restaurant in the no. 90s called Dive! Exclamation point. What was it called? Dive! Like D-I-V-E! Exclamation point. No, but I like that. That's great. It opened in uh, Los Angeles in May of 94, I guess. And they're eyeing a location on uh, West 57th Street, a few doors away from Planet Hollywood and Hard Rock Cafe. <laughs> Holy moly. Well, I found an article in uh, the LA Times in 1999. <laughs> it says... Sure, Steven Spielberg can make a good movie, but when it comes to sandwiches, he needs a little work. (laughs) The Uber director's much-hyped eatery dive has gone under. 
Why didn't they say has dove? I don't know. It's a missed opportunity. The once hip yellow submarine shaped delicatessen. How fun does that sound? Really fun? Which specialized, of course, in submarine sandwiches, closed its airlock-like doors this weekend. I mean, this sounds like such a fun place to go. Known for its underwater theme, replete with fish tanks, portholes, Jacques Cousteau-esque video footage, and Titanic-priced sub-burgers. I'm not even going to finish that sentence. How long was this place open? I guess it opened in May of 94, and it closed by January of 99. Four and a half years. So kids in Los Angeles really got a treat there. Yeah, they sure did. Oh, and this mentions another one. The Fashion Cafe. Do you remember that place? No. It was the supermodel version of Planet Hollywood. Okay. That sounds interesting. It came, you know, on the heels of Planet Hollywood. They were trying to... Who was involved? Naomi Campbell, I think, was involved. And maybe Claudia Schiffer. Sure. Oh, Claudia Schiffer. Yes. Oh, here it says, uh, which continues to believe cash suffered a major setback last year when Cat Walker Coombe investor Claudia Schiffer bailed on the chain. (laughs) Whoops. Uh, I remember they opened one in the Philippines. Really? Yeah. And I got so excited because, you know, who doesn't want to go to dinner with a bunch of models? (laughs) This eighth grader. I like the idea also that you're just like, if we go to the fashion cafe, there'll be models there all the time. Yeah, right. Yeah. Hey, hon, give me a Shirley Temple. <laughs> anyway, that's all. I thought that was funny. I can't believe you went into the sandwich business. I also can't. That's great. I, I'm trying to remember. So who, it was it was Spielberg, Katzenberg. And that's it? That's it. So David Geffen was just like, guys, uh, no. Yeah. He was like, I got into this business so I didn't have to do food service. Yeah. <laughs> what are you, two nuts? Do you think they were just like, it needs to be the three of us? Do you think they blame him? Wait, is Geffen on all the movies? Isn't he the G in SKG? Am I wrong? Oh, I think you're probably right. Unless G's just group. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's group. They just, they changed it when he, you know, they got rid of him. They said, uh, no, it was never get. What are you talking it about? Was never it was never group. Yeah, so we just wanted to let everybody know, first of all, that there's a lot of misconceptions that (laughs) our company has stood for Spielberg, Katzenberg, Geffen. It's not true. Spielberg, Katzenberg, group. Yeah, then when Spielberg ducks out. Okay, unrelated, (laughs) welcome to our new submarine shop. Uh. (laughs) It's called Dive. And the two of us who are in charge and have always been in charge Love this place. <laughs> it's also insane that you would make a restaurant like that and not have it serve seafood. Who wants to eat bread underwater? It's soaking wet. It's got the other pun. What other pun? They didn't invent the idea oh, that a submarine. some sandwiches sure, sure, sure. Are, called, are called. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> I forgot what it was called. Okay, Dateline. Tell me what other food you want to eat underwater that's perfect to eat underwater. Ah, French fries. <laughs> you know what? Can't argue with that. I think you said Dateline, right? String cheese. Dateline. Go ahead. Sushi in just three seconds from a robot. (laughs) Robots have come to New York, and what they have in their cold little plastic (sighs) hands is sushi. Quicker than a human, inevitable like the tide. The Suzumo Machinery Company's Sushi Robot, an $86,000 machine with four pairs of white plastic hands, is turning out 1,200 rectangular pieces of sushi every hour in a queen's commissary. For sale later in fast food restaurants. That's terrifying. The hands pat the rice once, twice, pat, pat. They pat the rice again, pat, pat. Wasabi, a horseradish sauce, drizzles. 
these commas are in crazy places, or I'm reading it really drizzles from a tube onto the rice. Kimi Ueki, a sushi chef, places the fish on the rice. I like that they need the chef for that part. <laughs> That sounds like the one person who has to watch the five different self-checkout machines at the CVS. Yeah. <laughs> so that he can walk over and swipe his card once, and then it's like, okay, it's working. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know why it broke either. Maybe it's because this is the worst idea that anybody's ever come up with. It's teamwork, though. So Chef Ueki places the fish on the rice, and then the plastic hands pat the rice yet again. And the whole process takes three seconds. So it's pat, 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 pat. Rice, pat, pat, uh, or, or pat, 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 fish, pat, pat, right? right? Yeah, you got it. You got to be precise. That chef has to be right That's on. true, to not slow the machine down. Yeah, that's a rhythm that you cannot break. Yeah, so you scoff, but meanwhile, yeah, he's the most rhythmic chef in cooking. <laughs> no matter how experienced or nimble, a sushi chef can only turn out two to 300 pieces of sushi an hour. The robot not only does it faster, but more cheaply. Machine-made sushi sells for between 50 and 70 cents a piece, while handmade sushi is $1.50 a piece or more. The robot, which came to this country in 1990 with just a few dollars in its pocket and a dream, through Ellis Island, <laughs> is leading to the creation of... No, it's just Arnold Schwarzenegger appeared naked. <laughs> 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 Terminator 7. <laughs> hey, that's one way to kill Sarah Connor. Oh my god. <laughs> Just put a blowfish on a sushi. <laughs> Do you have any allergies? Yeah. Hey, if anyone needs Russell to take the steaks out of Terminator, give us a call. <laughs> oh my god. Is leading to the creation of fast food Japanese restaurant chains, especially in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Whoa, each weekday in Manhattan, nearly 100,000 pieces of sushi made by robots are sold. And this was in 95. I was going to say, we're talking about this like it's one super sushi robot. It's an army. All that time ago, back in the early to mid 90s, and then sushi robots never happened again. I'm like, this is undoubtedly everywhere this is how sushi gets oh made. yeah i know i want to see the robot i wonder for all the chains the day begins at 4 30 in the morning when fresh fish is bought at the fulton fish market in manhattan buy another robot yeah <laughs> for sushi tay yuan liang cow rises from his bed in forest hills queens at 3 a.m goes to the fish market where he buys at least a thousand dollars worth of fish a day some salmon at 350 a pound some tuna at seven pound he says at 7 a.m he and the fish <laughs> are at the commissary in Long Island City, Queens, where the rice has been washed, cooked, gently vinegared, and cooled. Awaiting him are three sushi chefs and 17 assistants. One man slices fish into rectangles. Another man's domain is chicken, and he debones the thighs for teriyaki. At 8 o'clock, the robots are at work. Next to a Suzumo robot, which makes rectangular sushi, is its soulmate, a robot by Fujuseki Company, which makes rolls in three diameters. Did you just say it's soulmate? Yes, I read it's soulmate. I didn't choose the word. I appreciate that, but I'm just like... Hey, guys, if we're talking about sushi robots who also have souls, then Skynet is upon us. Sushnet. Sushnet. Isn't this something? <laughs> the robots have been in Japan since the late 70s. Wow. In 1977, the Suzuki Company produced the first robot to make sushi in the shape of rolls. How come no one ever talks about this? You see that Honda robot 20 times a year and it just stands there like an idiot. It looks like an astronaut that can't walk. 
How come nobody talks about this? What are they hiding? You want the truth about sushi robots to be on the forefront of everybody's mind all the time. Wow. In 1992, Fujiseki and Fukuoka started manufacturing sushi robots that make onigiri or rice balls, but only Suzumo is exporting its robots to the United States. Huh. Anyway, this article goes on for a very long time. I love it. That's a great article. It really is. That's all the news that's fit to print. Beautiful. Well done, Johnny. All right. So let's talk about this episode. Before we do, any buzz, any chatter on the old Social media for us, John. Uh, no, none. None. Great. Because okay. We forgot. We forgot. And I posted yeah, an hour before we recorded. It's fine. We'll get back at you. It was a hectic week. It sure was. I got an appendix out. Russ was on vacation. <sighs> Slander. Just dragging my good name through the mud. But another fun. <laughs> that's not what I, how I want to begin this sentence. That dummy Professor Richard Brown was back from NYU to talk about this episode again. Oh, that little horn dog. Yeah, I didn't write anything down about the interview. Did you write anything of down course. about the interview? Two pages I have of notes. <laughs> what did I say about what he said? Well, I was amazed because within the first 10 words of what he was saying to Paul and Jamie, he was just like, uh, you know, no matter what it is that you guys do. Uh, a French farce. A uh, French farce. That was amazing. I couldn't believe but it. But it's because I think they shot them all back to back, right? I'm sure. I'm sure of it. And boy, he really got a kick out of that French farce. He was flabbergasted that they made a French farce. He's never seen people coming and going so many times in one 22-minute. He may have asked a question originally like, now how did you have the script translated from French to English? Was that complicated? <laughs> this poor guy. <laughs> He probably didn't even want to do this. He was like, oh, <laughs> fine. Why? We need money. We need the funding, right? Fine. I don't know what to ask these people. I do. I teach yeah. film. Yeah. I don't even watch the show. <laughs> the show has been on the air for It's the two years. idiots can make fun of me 25 years from now? No thanks. <laughs> oh, my God. And then he puts it on. Yeah. He was like, oh, I didn't know the show was going to be so sexy. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> he said the show sounds the way people talk to each other, which I appreciate and I agree. It's unusual for a television show. Yes, I agree that it does. I think I got the feeling watching this that Paul and Jamie seem kind of done with this guy, too. Or yeah. Paul and Jamie, Paul and Helen. Yeah, they're a little tired, I think. Yeah. Everybody on this show talks the way people talk, and they're just like, mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That is the bare bones point of what we do and why we did the show. That's what any interview really is like. Sure. It's like, what yes. was it like working with him? Great. Like, you could say it that way, or you could be like, oh, wonderful. He, we had so much fun. He's such a silly guy. Sure. Yeah. He used the term the seduction of fame. <laughs> oh, my God. This guy's so gross. <laughs> we got to find out if he has a record. Like, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Huh. What's his home address, if you know what I mean? He's walked in and out of a lot of apartments he doesn't live in. <laughs> <laughs> French farce! <laughs> Door slam. <laughs> he said there was nothing like reality programming at the time, which is true. Right. An interesting point, I guess. He says Lisa used to really get on his nerves. Yeah, which I'm like, I don't want to hear your opinion on this show anymore if Lisa gets on your nerves. Yeah, what are you doing then? Like, you know it's a joke, right? Yes, yes. He might have as well have also said, and you know what? I found myself really relating to Paul and Jamie. 
you know, I would sympathize and I would tune in. I would find uh, when I would tune in, I would want to know what's going on with those two. <laughs> now, we did get a little sage writing wisdom from Paul. From Paul Bachman, oh, yes, Paul Reiser. Well, the professor commented on how uh, anytime anyone comes in, they always got a problem. And Paul said, well, yeah, if someone comes in without a problem, there's no show. Why are they there? Yeah. That's a great point. Great point. <laughs> Somebody comes in. Uh, hey, how are you? I'm good. Fine. All right. So we're both sitting here then? Fantastic. I mean, what you end up with is this interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Paul should have had a bomb strapped to him. <laughs> now we've got an interview like oh what's it called money monster is that what it's called yeah right why do you know that was <laughs> the garbage <laughs> hey check it out everyone money monster starring get this julia roberts and george clooney oh my gosh oh the bomber's not famous right i don't think so it's a real fun throwback movie yeah this came out, what, five years ago? Yeah, at this point? not long enough ago for it to be the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good oh, plane man. movie. Sure, I can see that. Yeah, a good plane movie, something involving a bomb. So this episode, guess who's back? Directing. He was all over this and he does a great job. The Catsman. The Catsman. Mr. Tommy Schlamy, a.k.a. T.S. Eliot, a.k.a. The Catsman. <laughs> it's been a long time since we've done one of those. <laughs> It sure has. It's been a long time since he's done one of those. It's true. Where the hell Who has he been? Baby? Oh, I wonder if he's been working on... Uh... No, I don't think so. Sports Night? I don't think Sports Night started yet. No, I think you're right. Yeah. He just wants to spend some more time with his family, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. He said, I'm going to step away from this a little. <laughs> I need to spend more time with my children. And it's written by Jack Burdett, who we had relatively recently as a writer. Yes. I think we enjoyed that episode as well. I think you may be right. Just to refresh your memory, the guy's all over TV now, even. Uh, 30 Rock, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, The Mindy Project, Great News, mm -hmm. Last Man Standing, even. Great. Yeah. Oh, and Watching Ellie, my favorite Julia Louis-Dreyfus series. <laughs> Take a hike, Veep. <laughs> I love it. What'd you think? I like this episode. That's it? Yeah, I mean, I laughed a lot at this episode. It felt like one of the best of the good ones. It's not a classic to me, it but like... It felt like one of the best of the good ones? Yeah. Oh, meaning not a great one? It's not a great one, but it's a real, real good one. Yeah, I'll say. You love this one? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's exciting. You're going to make me love it more. I'm sure of it. Well, we'll see. One thing that I did like about it, it was just the five of them. I loved that. Yeah, we didn't have any guests, any extras, any supporting characters. It was just Maggie shows up very briefly at the end. Of the oh, episode. yeah, that's right. That's right. But yeah, from across the hall. And also it's one scene. How cool is that? Yeah, one set. The whole episode is one scene. Pretty cool. In real time. In real time. Yeah, they'll do more of that in a few years. Oh, I've heard. But to do that at this time and in this way. This was a lot of fun. There's no cold open. Forget what you thought you knew about this episode of Mad About You. But when we come back from the theme music, we see the apartment phone, and it is ringing, and Paul is busy mounting cameras. He's standing on the bookcase. They're mounting cameras in different locations high in the apartment. Paul knocks the phone out of its holster. With his foot. Yes, he uses his foot. Yes. And he's yelling at the phone, which he can't hear anybody on the other line. I don't know what you're saying, but I'll answer chicken a la king. A real fun bit of pauliness. Absolutely. I don't know what that is. I mean, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's a fancy chicken dish. Creamy, right? I feel like it's creamy. 
I think you're right. It's yeah, yeah. Our parents' parents probably ordered it at diners a lot. Get this, it's a great way to use leftover chicken. Interesting. Yeah. It's also called an easy and elegant chicken dish. And quote, this creamy comfort is not only a great way to use up leftover chicken, it's also a modern take on a classic. Great. So maybe it's not something that's ordered at a diner. Maybe not. I would hope not based on this. Oh, yeah, we take all the chicken from last month that people didn't eat. (laughs) So Murray comes in with a tennis ball in his mouth. He wants to play fetch, but Paul wants Murray to save it the one the cameras are on. And then he starts to explain to Jamie, who is off camera in the bedroom, presumably. And also he is explaining to us, the audience, that PBS is doing a documentary series wherein they turn the cameras on documentarians. And so for 15 consecutive minutes, they want to show 15 minutes of the documentarian's life with no cuts. Paul, as he explains that, he walks into the bedroom. He learns that Jamie is not in the bedroom. Jamie comes back inside from the fire escape with a handful of flowers, which she has stolen from Hal and Maggie's fire escape. Jamie insists she did not. Paul says, I'm looking at roots as he is holding these very fresh flowers up in his hand. I feel like PBS is missing a real opportunity here. How so? Well, why are you hiring documentarians and then dictating the form in which they tell the 15 minute story about their family? You think you should just let them go? Yes. I feel like they're still doing it. They're not saying how they need to shoot it. You're right. I would have done it with a handheld. Yeah. I don't know why he didn't do that. Yeah. As Dr. Richard Brown said, reality television hadn't been invented yet. Fair. But surveillance cameras had. Well, this is how they shoot Big Brother, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I think you're right. I think this episode might have given CBS the idea. I think you're probably right. (laughs) Or England, I mean. England, the BBC, whoever makes that show over there. The nation of England. Yeah. You know what we could do? (laughs) Hugh Grant, is that you? (laughs) Uh, 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 uh. Yeah. Paul insists that PBS told him that morning that they would be shooting later that day. Yeah, there's no notice. There's no notice. It's all instant. Jamie says, well, I'm not giving them any money this year, which is fun. Paul points out, we never give them money. And she says, yeah, I'm not going to feel bad about it this time. Yeah, I've never given them money. I've never given PBS money either. It was worse than that because we would like, we would tape the telethon, like the specials that they aired for the pledge drives on PBS. We would video record them and then just, (laughs) you know, not know what I'm talking about. Like what are the specials? I know the telethon, but like, what's a special? The special programming. Like, no, I know, but like, give me a good one that I would want to tape. Let's say, for instance, that uh, this wasn't the case, but let's say that Billy Joel recorded a concert. Oh, oh, wow. All of Long Island. They should have been paying a fortune to PBS. I'm saying. Oh, and I so see. So they're showing this Billy Joel concert. But it wasn't usually that, was it? But it was still pretty it good. It was the New York Philharmonic plays the B-sides of the Star Wars score conducted on a remote video feed by John Williams. So along those lines, do you know what Blast is? Nah. It's a drink. It's the most awesome drink. <laughs> Uh, Blast was, I think it was the year 2000, no, it was 99, 2000, thereabouts. Basically, it was indoor marching band. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It won the first ever special performance Tony Award because they were like, this is a really 
awesome. They did it on a Broadway stage? They did it on Broadway. I saw it on Broadway. It was great. But before I saw it on Broadway, I saw it on a PBS telethon. And I taped it off the thing. And so I watched the version where I was just like, here's a song. And then here's two people trying to get you to pay a lot of money for a tote bag. And now back to another song. And I was like, these songs are great. Why would anybody give any money to PBS when they could just tape it for free? Now, I know the flip side of that is because if you don't give the money, you don't get the thing. Yeah, you were a kid. Yeah. But you should be paying them back now. Yeah, I should be doing that. And also, I should be paying some slash more money for all of the podcasts that I listen to. Hey, they're free. They're totally free. You can have them for free. All we ask is that once a year, you pay us a little money for them. No, they have ads. Not all. The ads cover a very small amount. I didn't know that. You listen to a lot of podcasts, though. I do. I really should. I listen to a couple. Anyway, what are we talking about here? Come on, let's get going here. What are we doing? Okay, here we go. Let's see. <laughs> Jamie's cleaning the room, and yeah, there are she basically socks. wants to make it look pretty. Yes, and Paul and is like, like "You no, gotta be real." Leave yeah, leave those socks on the pillow. It gives a splash of color. These bright red socks. Yeah. So now Paul's doing the same thing Jamie's doing in his own weird way, which is great. Yeah, he's artfully streaming these socks amongst his pillow, and then he says, it's like the little girl in the little red coat in Schindler's List. That was amazing. That killed me. (laughs) Oh my god. That is a timely and funny thing to say. So, uh, Jamie says a very funny thing. He says, I don't need the whole world knowing that we're slobs. And Paul says, we are slobs. Jamie says, you're a slob. I just got tired. Yeah. Ah, That's about right. That's an interesting distinction. For sure. So Paul reluctantly cleans up after Jamie threatens. Jamie tells Paul, your mother will see this, and then she'll come and clean all the time. And then we get to hear a little bit about Fran's molwa. You ready? You have to wait for Fran. For what? She's bringing over her molwa. I beg your pardon? Her molwa. It's an original. Fran has an original Mowa? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Philip Mowa, the Dadaist. So it's a Mowa Dada. <laughs> yes, it is. Used to be at MoMA. It's the Mowa Dada from the MoMA. <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay, see, I don't know what we're saying. Okay. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. This is great. I could almost hear you laughing all the way down. Some good old-fashioned wordplay. So great. So, so, so great. I could not find anything about Philip Moa. Yeah, I think he is fictitious. I think he might be too. Yeah. Which I don't get. Just pick a Dadaist. I'm sure they wanted to find a Dadaist with a fun name to say. Or maybe they started with Molwa and then said, oh, Molwa Dada. That's funny. And they were like, Moma. Moma Wawa Dada. Yeah. And they were like, can we get an actual artist? And they were like, well, why? We just made a perfectly fun name. And frankly, to not have an actual Dada painter to have their name used in this, it's pretty Dada. That's true. Very true. Yeah. So uh, at that point, phone rings. Jamie answers it. She yells to Paul, why did you yell chicken a la king at my sister? Great little callback. I love them when they're fast. Yeah. You know, we didn't wait the whole episode. The faster you do it, the less good of a payoff it has to be. So this was a medium payoff. So you must have been ecstatic. I was. (laughs) I was. So, yeah, Jamie says, why did you yell chicken a la king at my sister? Paul says, I didn't know that was her. Jamie says, why would you yell chicken a la king at anybody? Paul says, I was talking with my foot. Oh, I missed that. 
Yeah, I enjoyed that. And so at that point, Jamie gets another call from a client and she insists on the phone to this person that she will be working on his case all weekend. She hangs up the phone. They start putting out Scientific American magazine. They are getting the apartment all nice to appear on camera. Right. Yeah, they're showing the best versions of themselves, which, of course, right. is total garbage. Paul Murray comes by and wants to play fetch more. Paul pretends to throw a ball and then just holds on to it to try to get Murray to chase it, which he does. Oh, I thought he threw it. No, not that time. I was looking for that ball. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, you and Murray, same wavelength. Jamie said she didn't want everyone to think they just read TV Guide. And I was like, when she put out the Scientific American, I was like, hi, you guys read newspapers like they're going out of style. Like That's true. You don't, you're worried you're not going to look intellectual? Cover the department of the regular Sunday Times that you always do. <laughs> That's a great point. That's a very good point. But I get it. It's fun for the yeah. episode. Yeah, you guys are readers. There's an I Love Lucy episode just like this. Is there? Yeah, because there was a show in the 50s called something. And... <laughs> I think it was hosted by Ed Sullivan. It wasn't on the town. It was something like that, though. I don't remember. Okay. And they decide they're going to come over and profile uh, Desi Arnaz's, not Desi Arnaz's, of course, Ricky Ricardo's home life because he's getting a little notoriety. And so, of course, the fact that they're all going to be on national television and it's going to be live and it's like the idea is you just want to show what we live like, you know? And yes, it's not quite this like reality ish, but it's like everyone just be natural and like, right. And then, of course, everyone goes haywire, including Fred and Ethel, who pull an Ira. <laughs> Ira is about to be great. Yeah. Mr. NYU thought this was a novelty new thing, but it's <laughs> a 50-year-old premise, at least. I'm bored with it, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it. So Paul clicks his remote, which is hooked up to all of the cameras, yells action, and Paul and Jamie... Basically, they don't freeze up. They just don't have anything to talk about. So they start talking about the rain, whether it's not going to rain or not. It's very boring and very forced. Then Paul yells cut, recommends they do things. So Jamie starts to work out of her desk. She's going through mail. Paul reads a magazine at his couch. That is also boring. They lead boring lives. They don't have anything to, or at least at home they do. This is a flawed concept for a documentary in at least some extent. Indeed. So Jamie asks Paul what other documentarians they picked. He says Ken Burns, Seymour Luce, Andre Doucette, and the Yee Brothers. Am I correct in those? I mean, I didn't get those same names, but the names I got, though, I couldn't find. So what names did you I get? think these are made up. Ken Burns isn't. No, besides him. I think the others may be made up as well. Seymour Luke and Andre Duquesne or whatever. Yeah. Luke, that's right. Not Luce. Yeah. More Dada. More of that crazy Dada art. Yeah. This is a real Dada episode. (laughs) Dadaist episode. Jamie asks about the Yee Brothers. What do their wives do? Paul says, The Yee Brothers? Jamie says, Yeah. Paul says, Yee Brothers are gay. Jamie says, Both of them? Paul says, Want to know a secret? Not so much brothers. So that's a fun bit of homophobia that I enjoy. Well, it was the time, though, a little, too, you know. That is a fine joke for the time and for what it is. But Jamie's worried they're not going to be so cool now. Yes. You know, all these people sound way cooler. They're foreign. They're gay. Right. They're famous. Andre Doucette's wife, or Duquette, is a junkie. (laughs) Andre and his wife met in prison, Paul tells her. (laughs) Yeah, that's a gritty couple. Yeah, Jamie feels like she can't compete with these more interesting people. So then they start recording again. And we tilt the angle, the camera angle, behind the camera of the documentary. It's masterful. We move from watching the scene to the watching the viewfinder of the camera that's watching the scene. 
So now we're watching a documentary, essentially. It's really great. Good job, Tommy Schlamy. That's a Schlamy move. For sure. And Jamie needs a cigarette. You know what this smoke reminds me of? What's that? This biker bar where I used to hang out. <laughs> the one you hung out of? Yeah. The biker bar? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was that called? Bikes and things. Bikes and things killed me. Oh, it's so good. And it's so well delivered. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant. Doorbell goes off and Ira arrives in... Uh, what color are you saying this suit is? White. Slate gray, green. white, cream. Beige. Bright. This is a bright new suit with a white shirt and no tie buttoned up underneath it. Paul asks what's with the suit and then Ira comes in. He's basically shooting a commercial for the store. It's amazing. He, he gives the address. He talks about the hours. He talks about the service. What's beautiful is he works it into dialogue as if he's just talking. Yeah. Yeah. What am I doing? Oh, nothing. I've just been over Buckman Sporting Goods. I'm exhausted from all of their Yeah, terrific. all the business. Yeah, yeah, it's great. That's all happening in our foreground. In the background, Jamie is sitting in the window with her leg up in the window. Yeah. Smoking like... Like Francis Ha. <laughs> Like, this is another beautiful, like, this is a multicam, ladies and gentlemen. It's this amazing shot of Ira pulling focus, and then behind him, in the distance, slightly out of focus, Jamie in the window with her leg. Like, it looks like a European, it looks like the kind of film it's trying to evoke. Yeah, it's so good. Paul looks back and is just laughing at her. Yeah, he breaks a lot in this one, and I love it. Being someone she clearly is not it's so great i guess they could have cut but they also you could run this whole thing right through yeah like a yes. show you know like a play yeah for sure so she's yelling at the new yorkers below to scurry along little ants back to your holes <laughs> oh. oh man after they cut paul says to ira ira we're not doing a commercial and you at jamie he says and you we're not doing Barfly. I love that. Barfly interest, uh, was a movie from, I'm not sure about the year, but I do know that it starred Paul's diner compatriot, Mickey Rourke. Oh, and Faye Dunaway. Oh, baby, that trailer is a sexy looking movie. Yeah. Oh, it was written by Charles Bukowski. That's right. Yeah. It was about his life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that is a funny as hell thing right? for yeah. Paul to pull out at this moment. I feel like this episode's full of things like that. And even the made-up illusions, it's yeah. like one of the more sophisticated kind of episodes. Like, the references are more sophisticated. I agree. And contemporary. Like, he then calls her Courtney Love, like, a few minutes later. I can't get over that. Somehow that makes me feel very old. I'm like, Mad About You is old. So for Mad About You to reference Courtney Love, which I'm just like, oh, Courtney Love, she was very popular when I was in high school. I'm like, uh-oh. Yeah. I'm starting to catch up with me. Right. Yeah, you're old, man. Yeah. It just feels we're playing in a sandbox, like a more adult sandbox than normal for this episode. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's well said. Here's one thing I'll say. Okay. Jamie said Fran was coming over with that painting. Why'd they start recording before she came over? Answer, they had to to get the episode moving and to have a funny scene with Fran coming up. Yes. But it makes no sense. No sense dramaturgically, no sense. But I'll live with it. We'll accept it. Because we'll I love it. it. This one earned it. So Murray brings Paul his toothbrush 
Murray has been just dropping stuff off all episode long, fetching and retrieving things. Yes. So Ira wants to stick around the apartment. Paul says, get out of here, please. Ira wants to stay. He says, I got a suit made for this. This is an important bit of information. Yes, this will come up later. Dramaturgically, very sound. Jamie, at this point, is exposing her midriff as she suns in the window. (laughs) And that's where Paul calls her Courtney Love. And Jamie says, excuse me for having a dark side. (laughs) That's what it is. We see like their non-mainstream adultness more. Oh, man. I wish I could pull her name right now. What was her stupid name from The Hitchhiker? Oh, I have no idea. I know it. This is no longer Jamie. We've entered Donette territory. Oh, yes, that's it. You're right. Jamie Buckman has gone away. And we are here for Donette, ladies oh, and gentlemen. That would have been amazing if they referenced that night. If she referenced that nightclub and connected the Hitchhiker universe to Mad About You. Oh, oh if she just looked at Paul and said, why are you here? oh very good oh man i mean it is similar in a way like they're making 15 minutes of reality sure that's true that's also true i think this episode was inspired by that episode of hitchhiker and also served as the inspiration for the tv series big brother these veins run deep (laughs) boy oh boy so they start shooting again with everybody there At that point, Fran arrives with the Dada painting and Jamie indicates that they are on and they are recording and Fran completely freezes with the giggles. She just gets stage fright and laughs mouth open. She's frozen, basically. Help me with a better word, John. No, you got it. Yeah. She gets stage fright. Yeah. They turn off the cameras. Paul gets Ira to take Fran out of there. He offers to buy them both food he says get out of here so they do one great thing but you don't see it because fran tells a whole story about the painting and the camera's on fran but jamie's putting the painting on the desk as fran's telling the story so you see her on the left side of the camera she puts the painting down and then she flips it because she can't tell because it's an abstract yeah Yeah, she flips the painting like 180 degrees and then 90 in the opposite direction she doesn't know which way is up right because it's a crazy painting it's very subtle and funny so Jamie, at that point, starts going through headshots. She wants to recast the role of Paul's wife for this thing. And Jamie says, for the next 15 minutes, wouldn't you rather be married to Uma Thurman? And Paul basically says, I would never be married to anyone named Uma. Mm. And the reason why, I couldn't deal with it. In the mornings, you'd have to say, Uma, your breakfast is ready. Uma, eggs. I couldn't say it. So that's a fun bit of nonsense. That is my kind of nonsense. (laughs) Uma, eggs. Uma eggs. So Jamie again says that she wished she'd had more notice for this thing to prepare, but they didn't. So they're just going to move forward and they agree to shoot for 15 minutes straight. But there's only 14 minutes and 29 seconds left when they do. So something's going to happen. Uh oh. Now, there's a minor continuity issue, which I will allow. I think it's because of the commercial break. There is. Because they say, like, they're like, okay, so we're going to start shooting, and we're going to go for 15 minutes, all right? We're going to go in five, four, three, two, one, and then we go to commercial, which is a very, very satisfying way to cut to a commercial. And they come back, and they backpedal a few lines. 
They're like, okay, we're going to go for 15 minutes straight. Ready? And then they do a handshake that wasn't there before. And then they're like, okay, and action. So they cut out the countdown. Oh, right. Frankly, I regret even bringing it up. I'm having too much fun with this episode to pick such nits. Yeah, great. Or I guess not. Anyway, <laughs> so Jamie and Paul go into the kitchen in order to make coffee. It's a thing they're going to do now, an activity. And the whole thing now is it's like, this is it. This is it. 15 minutes. And no matter straight. what happens, yep. we're not cutting. We're acting yep. normal. Yep. Nothing can derail this. Absolutely. So they go in. Jamie goes to make coffee, goes to get a coffee filter. There are no more coffee filters. So Jamie goes into the garbage to clean out an old coffee filter to reuse it. Which is insane. It's pretty gross in general. And I don't think that they would do that. I could see her doing it, which also makes her a slob. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> yeah, we're throwing shade on you, Rise Guys and Rise Gals. <laughs> I have never done this either, which I feel pretty good about. As she's doing that, she realizes that she has been caught doing this by the cameras, and she can't get out of it. You can't unring the bell of reusing a coffee filter. Out of the trash. Oh, Out of the garbage. It wasn't even just sitting in the thing. That I'd maybe right. accept, but it was in the garbage. Right. No, yeah. This is inexcusable and not done. So she asks for a cut. Paul denies this cut, and then... They both go out into the living room where Murray has, I guess, a leopard print bikini bottom, Mm -hmm. which Paul tries to give to Jamie. And Jamie says, that's not mine. And Paul kind of blushes and says he wants to cut now. And they cannot cut. Paul's got a little wild side. I guess so. Here's the thing. That's its own episode. Like I don't know if that's really true. Something about this element, because later on, yes, we learn a little bit that these bikinis, these bikini briefs, are Paul's. Yeah, I feel like it gets brushed under the rug, swept under the rug. And under lots of circumstances, this would be a huge deal for this show, rather than just one thing that happens towards the end in passing. Why would it be a huge deal, though? She knows. She's not surprised. Nothing's disrupting their life. It feels out of character for him. All right. I don't know. Anybody can wear whatever the hell they want, but for me, my understanding of Paul Buckman is that he wouldn't be wearing that. And if it was, it wouldn't just be like, oh, yeah, I wear those sometimes. Well, again, I think that speaks to the adult nature of this episode. I agree. So why are you limiting the character? John, can we please not do this here? (laughs) (laughs) So at that point, oh, my goodness. Anne Ramsey, Lisa, arrives to destroy everything thank you very much for calling me back i mean it's not like i'm in crisis or anything and my shrink went skiing and wouldn't give me the number anyway there's that tape i borrowed okay, lisa oh. hey remember that meat packer daddy told me to stay away from so i make a date with him last night right since dennis's wife is back in town and what am i supposed to do sit at home alone playing hello kitty okay uh, <laughs> what am i doing with him in the first place i mean it, it's not like he's so great or anything i mean how many times can you fake it oh dennis <laughs> Dennis. Oh, yeah, Dennis. Oh, yeah, that's it. Right there, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. You're the king. Here I go. Wow. This is masterful. It is unbelievable. It's Emmy-worthy. Gosh. If you're just listening, in the middle of that, Lisa comes in wearing a big, long trench coat that is tied up. And in the middle of it, she drops her trench coat 
and she is topless. Her back is to the camera, so we, the audience, do not see her being topless. But Jamie and Paul sure do. She just throws on another blouse of Jamie's sweater, I believe, and heads on out. But this whole thing is done so well. She just lays waste to everything. Yeah, I mean, there's just no words. I mean, I just had a few. Oh, the ones you said already or more? You're like, no, Russ, I heard your words and I stick by what I said. There are no words. Yeah, right. I know you said words. Those aren't the words. Those aren't them because they don't exist. You shouldn't have done what you did. The writers nailed it, too. Yeah. It's so perfectly written. It's a great story. (laughs) It just keeps surprising you with things you don't want on camera. Like, it's a masterpiece. It's great. Plus, there's a little moment when after Lisa changes shirts, she's leaving. And Paul gives Jamie, like, a thumbs up regarding her sister's breasts. Really? I missed that. And Jamie smacks his arm. That's funny. (laughs) and gross it's just so great but no grosser than that one episode where they have a sister sensibility where they can feel each other yeah that was weird yep (laughs) that's a weird part that i forgot about Mm -hmm. yeah a little sensate i think maybe the the okowski sisters (laughs) probably seen that episode and that's where they got the idea for sensate i think you're right i can't think of another way (laughs) at this point murray now brings in a red folder to Jamie. The folder is full of receipts for the cameras that were rented by Paul, and they are dated two weeks ago. Right. So Jamie now knows that Paul knew about this in advance. He lied, which I get. He wanted it to be natural. Yeah, for sure. You shouldn't lie, but I get it. Right. He wanted Jamie to be as natural as possible Uh and not worry and freak out for two weeks. So... That's when my beloved Jen, sitting next to me, said, Paul was hoisted by his own pet dog. That's fun. (laughs) Yeah, we had fun. That one's for you, too, on the couch. (laughs) Like, it's very good, but I could see it really killing. Like, if Christina looked at me and said that right after it happened, I'd die. I was like... Here's the thing, like... It's very smart. I followed that up by saying to Jen, this is what has happened. This is what I've done to you by you waiting on me as I recover from and have my surgery. She was so careful and she took such good care of me that now I have subliminally made her say things like he was hoisted by his own pet dog. Wait, what? My dumbness... You're taking the credit for her... Oh, like, it's a beautiful line. Pun? And it is a beautiful pun, and it is a stupid thing to say. Yes, it is. Both those things. I will give her 100% of the credit of the beauty, and I will take 100% of the blame for the dumbness. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> oh, man. I'll never be able to unhear that. <laughs> Every time I hear pet dog or petard, I will think of the other. You'll think of the other? Yeah. That's great. I've said it like 50 times in my head this whole conversation. <laughs> Two are interchangeable now. Yeah. Oh, man. Hoist by his own petog. <laughs> so Jamie wants to know when Paul found out about this shoot. And like we have already said, two weeks prior. Yes, she puts together 
Ira had a suit made. Paul has been teaching Murray tricks. Yeah, that's why he's bringing all his stuff out. There's a little clip here. The repartee here is great. There's a couple of really great jokes that Paul spits out, and so I want everybody to hear it. When did you find out about this film? What? When did you find out about this film? What difference does that make? Ira had a suit made for this thing, didn't he? He's little. How long could that take? You've been teaching Murray tricks. No. Okay. Well, I, you know, look. Okay, so you told Murray and you told Ira. No, maybe Murray told Ira. You don't know. I can't believe you lied to okay, me like okay. that. You know what, sweetie? Let's, let's talk about this later. What? Did you think I didn't want to do it? No, honey. Later. Seriously. No, you keep talking about honesty. Let's be honest. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm just saying I would honestly like to talk about this later. <laughs> Wait, which ones? The ones talking about with Ira and Murray. And he's like, Ira bought a suit. He taught Murray tricks. Uh, you told Ira? And Paul's like, maybe Murray told Ira. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry I made you repeat that right after you played it. That's fine. Just the way that it went was really funny. I liked it a whole lot. So Jamie starts to give Paul the silent treatment until he comes clean. And then he does. And Paul points out that he hadn't been truthful about the cameras. Then, hey... Jamie wasn't truthful about the flowers. Mm-hmm. There. You see these? Yes. They're yours. Oh. You happy now? Oh, like I'm so impressed. Excuse me. Wait, wait, wait one second. All right. You see these? Yes. They're mine. I bought them, I wear them, and they make me feel very special. Okay? There oh, you go. Big deal. Do you want to see Franz Mulwa? No. No, I certainly do not. So now they start going at it. Yeah, they have a truth off. Yeah, basically. We, we are, again, behind the camera. We are, what would it be? We are camera eye lens. The viewfinder, Russ, the viewfinder. Thank you. <laughs> we are. <laughs> we are camera lens go view action. <laughs> and stop. Perfect, everyone. Going back to three. And don't act anymore. Okay, and from the count of five, Three, five, four, two, one. <laughs> Action. And go. And now begin. <laughs> so <laughs> Paul and Jamie start having a truth off. Paul says, this is how we live. They're clothes on the floor. Jamie says, I don't read Scientific American. Paul says, my teeth are capped. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Jamie says, my middle name is Eunice, which is a weird one. Well, it's not that weird. But how did Paul respond later? She said her middle name was, I forget what, but something else. Karen, I think. Yeah, yeah. she lied. Yeah. Paul tapes Baywatch. Paul tapes Baywatch. Jamie has a tattoo. That was shocking. I hope we get more info on that. I, think I that's don't fun. think we will. <laughs> Paul says, I once fell asleep in the middle of sex, which Jamie corroborates. And Paul says, you're supposed to do one of your own. And Jamie's just like, well, that one doesn't shine very lightly on me. Paul says, I directed Hooter Vacation under a pseudonym. Yeah, I love that one. It's really fun. And Jamie basically says, I'm not working on your stuff this weekend, Mr. Walcott, who was the guy who called before. Yeah. And so, yeah, at that point, they feel as though they've purged their closet and also their souls, and they feel better. And then they go back to trying to make things nice around their home so that they can do it again. Go back to lying or tell a more truthful version or something. Yep. Sometimes the truth is too honest. Yeah. Boy, did you say it. Mm-hmm. So that's the end of episode proper. And then the tag is mostly pointless. 
Yeah, just more stilted small talk. It's a good time to get freshen your drink, go to the bathroom before a friend starts or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Get yourself ready for the 830 show. Yeah. I knew it was going to happen. I liked this episode when I started. I love this episode by now. It's phenomenal. Really fun. Big fan. Similarly, huge fan. (laughs) And Rise Guys and Rise Gals, we are huge fans of you. Thank you so much for listening. You're the best. We would love it if you would rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to these things. John, tell the people what they can do. You can subscribe, rate, and review to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn FM. You can email us at madaboutyoupod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at madaboutyoupod. You can Facebook us at madaboutyoupod. We're everywhere, baby. Get at us. Woo! And we're dying to talk to you. We love hearing from you. It's a lot of fun. Oh, and tell a friend. That's the new thing we're doing. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Tell one friend. If you like it or if you hate it. Mm -hmm. I listen to things my friends hate sometimes just to see. I love to hate listen to stuff. Yeah, same. So, yeah, do that. Hate us. And then hate listen to Russ and enjoy my contributions. (laughs) Sounds about right. (laughs) We've got a theme song and it goes like this. It's by Mr. John D. Ivy. Thank you so much, John. Our logo is by Nathan Diffie. You can find him on Twitter at Nathan D-I-F-F-E-E. Thank you, Nathan. The sound was mixed by Mr. Vuk Yovanovich. Thank you, Vuk. That's it. Boy, oh boy. Boy, oh boy. Anything else you want to talk about or plug or anything, John? No. You? Great. Similarly, no. Yeah, nothing right now. You can always come by the Magnet on a Tuesday night at the Magnet Theater and come see Public Pool. We're going to sing and dance our faces off for you. Make something up. What a treat. What a joy. But barring that, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. We hope you will enjoy next episode, the second episode of the post-appendix era. Indeed. Rise, guys and rise, gals. Thanks again. This has been Mad About Mad About You. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Russ Fader. And I'm John Marbley. And And this this is is what what we're saying. saying.